Mike Rags and Todd Burlich with a Blue Gold Report podcast. Fighting Irish sports from the inside out. Subscribe to the Blue Gold Report. It's not just talk, it's the Blue Gold Report. Welcome to another edition of the Blue Gold Report. I'm Todd Burlich. I will fly solo today. We thought we had the band back together. We did briefly last week, but still summer schedules collide. So I'm going to host this thing solo, so wish me luck here, and if uh, like it or not, I want you to follow me, rate me, do whatever you have to do, subscribe to me, find the Blue Gold Report. Rags is on assignment with his radio gig, Mason, our other colleague here. He is out at Lollapalooza, so I couldn't drag him away from that as much as I tried. So again, I did have a chance to talk with Mason about a little recruiting thing I was interested in. Chip Long, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator, said in the spring that he wanted to have the same talent at some point at Notre Dame that the 2015 team did, and that has a lot of great offensive linemen. I won't, I won't uh, spoiler alert here. I'm not going to give you a bunch of names here till we get to it. And it looks like the way this 2020 class is going that he may get his wish here sooner than later. Also had a chance to catch up with the previous Notre Dame Vice President of Campus Safety and Events, Mike Seaman. I've been curious. It's a story I'm working on for Blue and Gold Illustrated. That's what I do. That's uh, part of my gig here. I write for Blue and Gold Illustrated about just all these sort of uh, external events that Notre Dame is taking on now. You guys all know about the soccer. Most recently, had to put artificial turf into a, or I'm sorry, natural turf into an artificial turf stadium. Did the hockey thing, built an ice rink on the stadium floor, the U.S. Senior Open. We talk a lot about Garth Brooks, Mike Seaman and I, because what happened there, the logistics and the weather and everything, is pretty interesting stuff. So I'll pop that interview in as well. And also, this is Brian Kelly's Monday camp opens. Most importantly, I buried the lead there a little bit. Brian Kelly will start his 10th year on Monday here at Notre Dame. He will become only the fifth coach in Notre Dame history to last 10 years. So we're going to kind of look at how he did on his ninth compared to the others and what the other four did in their 10th year. Actually, Brian Kelly had the best ninth year of any of these five we're talking about. So we will get to that shortly. Those are going to be your talking points for the day. I better preface it by saying, Dio McComan Sons, thank you very much for your sponsorship to the show. Again, Mike Rags on assignment, Mason Plummer at Lollapalooza. But we will start with or without them. We will start Every show, like we do all of them, with blue gold nuggets. A little bit of a tragic note here to start with Nick Bonacani. He was a former Notre Dame All-American and an NFL Hall of Fame linebacker. Uh, He passed away this week at 78. I think what makes this story so tragic is it was part of that CTE, uh, the degenerative brain disease that happens through the contact. You know, we're hearing a lot more about it and a lot more is coming about it. He was an undersized overachiever, great guy. He was actually uh, the team captain for the Miami Dolphins' perfect season in 1972. And he wasn't even drafted. He managed to land on the Dolphins there. Uh, Played for Notre Dame and led the team in tackles with 74. That was in 1961. He finished here with 212 career tackles. I thought what jumped out at me the most is the work he has done in trying to fight, or really trying to research and necessarily fight paralysis. Nick's son, Mark, was playing for the Citadel and was paralyzed from the shoulders down um, after a collision 
that he was making a tackle on, Mark was making a tackle on. That happened in 1985. So the two worked closely together. They raised more than a half billion dollars uh, on that cause. So good for them. Tragic news. That CTE is very, very scary stuff. Going to move on. The Notre Dame transfers from 2018, they've all been completed now because former Notre Dame cornerback Noah Boykin, he would have been a sophomore. He only spent one year here. He's transferring to UMass, University of Massachusetts. He was actually a four-star recruit coming in. He was rated as the number 21 cornerback in the country for that 2018 class from 247 Sports. Didn't really pan out. I think he got a little bit impatient. I think his time would have come, but he does have some heavy hitters ahead of him. So he wants out and about. I don't know if it's a great move. Hopefully it's a great move for him. Just never made his mark. He has been he worked with the threes throughout the entire spring season, so it didn't look like there was going to be a lot of room for him in the rotation. So he's checking out. Um, let's see here. He will join four other 2018 transfers, and again, these are the five, so it's complete. Brandon Wimbush went to Central Florida, obviously quarterback. Defensive tackle Micah Dude Treadway went to Minnesota. Safety Devin Studstill went to South Florida. And linebacker DJ Morgan went to UConn. So that completes the transfer list right there. And now we can start to move a little bit forward here. The camp schedule, training camp schedule has been released. As particular as usual, the first five of those will be held at Culver. That starts on Monday. Exciting stuff there. It's going to be open. Going to get a chance to catch up with some players and coaches and whatnot and start to get some audio from the real folk instead of just listening to me, Hammer. There will be 18 total practices in training camp. Again, I'm sorry, it starts on Sunday. Sunday, August 4th is the first day of training camp at Culver, and they'll run practices at Culver Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so five of them. They'll move back then to Notre Dame on Saturday the 10th to spend the other 13 there. There's eight media access practices so again we'll be able to get some good audio for you moving forward i'm excited about that excited to get gone and those are your blue gold nuggets all right i have to give loose emoji my esteemed editor at blue and gold illustrated a little bit on credit on this he did an interesting story on year nine when brian kelly opens practice on monday he will become only the fifth notre dame coach in history to last 10 years. Now, longevity has its privileges and it also has its disadvantages because already Brian Kelly is the losingest coach in Notre Dame history. <laughs> you know what? Let me look that up in a little bit. But he also has a chance to be the winningest coach if he sticks around for a couple of years. But I thought it was cool that Brian Kelly actually of all these. Okay, so here we are. Here, here are the guys. Here, we, here are the guys. Newt Rockney, Frank Leahy, Eric Parsegian, and Lou Holtz. That's kind of your Mount Rushmore of Notre Dame coaches right there that Brian Kelly is trying to fit himself amongst there. In year nine of these guys, didn't always go so well. Now, Newt Rockney went 9-1 and one in 1926. Doesn't sound too bad, right? But he lost what that one game he lost. It was nineteen nothing to a team called Carnegie Tech, and it was the second worst loss of his entire Notre Dame career. Here, um, the funny thing about it is Newt didn't think he was needed for that particular game because they had been hammering Carnegie Tech for previous years all in a row. So he said, instead of coaching the game, I'm going to do some promotional work for our team in Chicago. Looks like he should have stuck around there. 
Frank Leahy, another great coach, obviously. He struggled. He went 7-2-1, and one, seven wins, two losses, one tie, and didn't even finish in the AP poll, the final AP poll, which was 20 teams back then. So that was a little bit of a slip-off for one of the best coaches. I think the best percentage coach actually in Notre Dame history, probably behind Rockney. Era, Parsegian, had his only three-loss season. He was here for 11 years, and his ninth year was his only one that he lost three games or more, which is very impressive. Still finished 14th um, in the AP poll, the final AP poll, which was the lowest final ranking of his career. And Lou Holtz, here's the one that jumps out at you. Lou Holtz went six five and one in his ninth year. In his ninth year, after going sixty four nine and one the previous six seasons, when he won one national title and had two near misses, his ninth season was the beginning of the end, really for him in a lot of respects, um, because it didn't get much better for him health wise and success wise. Moving on to the tenth year, which we can kind of project, start to. Try to project for Brian Kelly. Eric Parsegian went 11-0 and and won a national title. He beat Alabama in that classic game, 24-23. That was his second and final title. Era lasted 11 years here. Interesting, Frank Leahy went 7-2-1, and which was the same record as the previous year, but yet finished number three in the polls this time when he was out of the polls the previous season. But that was because he had wins over conference, eventual conference champions and top five opponents, Texas, Oklahoma, and USC. So one seven two and one is not equal to all seven two and ones. Newt Rockney went seven one and one. Little bit of a nondescript season for him since he basically won every game and every season. Lost to Army and tied Minnesota after starting five and zero. So that was just kind of really under Rockney's. Under Rockney's watch, that was really kind of a nondescript season. And Holtz actually rebounded after that 6-5 one I talked about. He went 9-3 and three after finishing outside the top 25 the previous year for the first time in eight years. 9-3 uh, and three did end up being good enough for a number 11 final ranking. But during that season, Holtz actually underwent neck and spinal surgery. Bob Davey took over kind of in his interim. And that that was really it. I mean, Holtz was gone then the following season. Again, I mentioned longevity has its privileges and its disadvantages, and it's going to be. It, it'll be interesting to see how long BK stays here. He's eighty-one and thirty-four. Okay, the thirty-four losses is already the most in program history, which is kind of amazing to me, actually. But the thirty-four losses, Brian Kelly already holds the record for most in program history. The eighty-one wins puts him behind these four guys we're talking about. Newt Rockney leads the way with one hundred and five. Lou Holtz is second with 100. Frank Leahy, third, 87. I'm sorry, Eric Parsegian, third with 95. And Frank Leahy, fourth with 87. So you would think BK will catch, let's hope, BK catches Frank Leahy this year. And, you know, if, if BK sticks around, has two or three more good seasons, he honestly could leave here as the winningest and losingest coach in program history. He's 24 wins away from Rockney's record. But how long will he stay? That's I thought that was kind of interesting, just looking at the 9 versus 10-year sort of setup there. And actually, Brian Kelly is only one of 16 coaches in the country to be with their program for 10 years or more when things kick off on Monday. I, want to talk, I wanted to talk to Mason a little bit about, because there was another story that, that I, was, I, I kind of stumbled upon that I thought was pretty interesting. And it's that Chip Long, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator during the spring, said... 
man, I wish I had that 2015 talent that Notre Dame had. And he said, I will get there. I will get to that Notre Dame 2015 talent. So that was his mission through recruiting. And it looks to be taking hold. And I'll let Mason break it down a little more than I do here. This was a previously recorded clip that I did earlier today. Like I said, he's at Lollapalooza Festival. So let's pop this in. Again, you can find Mason Plummer at Twitter. It's at Mason Plummer 6. Find him on Twitter. He does great work. And he's getting more and more duties with at, or I'm sorry, slapthesign.com. That's where he does his writing, slapthesign.com. Look him up, and here's our interview. So here he is, as advertised, Mason Plummer, live from Chicago, Lollapalooza. He, ba- he bailed out on me this week. He's going to go have fun while I hold down the fort here. Mason, how you doing, sir? Doing great, man. Excited for this weekend. Yeah, for sure. Should be a good time. I appreciate you taking some time uh, just when you're getting ready to go here. I was reading something. I thought it would be kind of fun to bring you in on this. When Chip Long, just here in the spring, obviously the Notre Dame offensive coordinator, that Someday he would like to have the talent that Notre Dame had in 2015 on his team. Yeah, it's a pretty solid group here. Uh, first and foremost, it set a record. It averaged 7.02 uh, yards per play that Notre Dame offense did, which is a record for the school. That was when Deshaun Kaiser was quarterback. C.J. Procise was running back. Uh, Will Fuller, wide receiver. Alze Mack, who actually had a very good year that year, was the tight end. And listen to this sick offensive line here. Ronnie Stanley, Mike McGlinchey, Quentin Nelson, and Nick Martin. Um, You got NFL guys there, high-drafted NFL guys there. I guess, Mason, that takes us to my point of this. It sort of looks like with what Notre Dame is doing offensively from this 2020 class that maybe indeed Chip Long might get his wish. I mean, it starts with Jordan Johnson, wide receiver, five-star. Nine members in this class. Do you see any? I know it's really way too early to start trying to compare it to that fifth 2015 group but at the same time do you see some similarities at least from a recruiting standpoint in that talent yes the Notre Dame's recruiting the offensive line level just like they did back then you know Notre Dame's becoming O-line university as well as tight end university and you're seeing I see a lot of comparisons with Mac and Komet as well as uh, the new the new recruit Xavier Watts out of Nebraska he draws a lot of comparisons to Will Fuller um, Will Fuller wasn't the highest rated recruit out of high school, neither is Watts. He's only a three-star, as was Fuller. And he has the burning speed that Fuller has. And if he can be half as good of a player as Fuller was for that 2015 Notre Dame team, we're seeing something special out of Watts. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's, that's just Watts. You know, I mentioned Jordan Johnson, obviously. He's the lone five-star offensive player on this team. So it's sort of funny when you're talking about two guys that you can almost compare to Will Fuller. I think what jumps out at me in this 2020 class is, first of all, they really did fill some needs. I go to offensive line first. Um, um, Tosh Baker probably leading that group there. But then I think what they really needed was impact guys, guys that come in can come in right away. And you're talking about six of these nine players are ranked in the top 100. Um, so that's pretty solid stuff right there. You know, you're talking about Michael Mayer, the tight end who was offensive player of the year at the opening, or I'm sorry, player of the week at the opening, that recruiting uh, showcase. Certainly he could come in and play right away, even though he has some pretty talented guys ahead of him. You know, and then when you couple him with a four-star, another four-star tight end, Kevin Bauman, you're talking about easily the most, the most impressive haul of anybody when it comes to tight end in the country. And I think Drew Pine's going to become a fine quarterback, perhaps in the same – you can maybe compare him to Deshaun Kaiser. 
So when you're, when you're looking at impact, Mason, do you see that in this group as well? Yeah, absolutely. And if Komet has the breakout season that most people are projecting him to have, then there's no reason why he doesn't leave for the NFL draft. And then you see a guy like uh, you, you see a guy like Michael Mayer or Kevin Bauman come in and make an immediate impact on the team, as a, even as a freshman. Another guy drawing a comparison to the 2015 team is uh, Chris Tyree, who we haven't even talked about yet, who's a, who's a stud running back, who I, I think personally I have him as a five-star, no bias. But um, <laughs> he, he uh, draws a lot of comparisons to T.J. Process and his pass-catching ability and running ability. He's a number one rated all-purpose back. You know, he's not just going to be able to carry the ball, but he can catch it just as well. And that's something you really need in a high-powered offense like Chip Long wants at Notre Dame. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you brought him up because that's where I was heading, you know, because this offense, one of the things that they've actually been pretty public about, they, they want more explosiveness. They're, they're getting the numbers. They're getting the high recruits, but they feel like they're missing that explosiveness. And I think obviously Tyree provides that. And I think Jordan Johnson does as well. So I think when you go down this whole list, and I don't know, Mason, you're a lot better at this recruiting stuff than I am. I certainly agree that Tyree could eventually play his way into a five-star talent. And I think the same could be said for Michael Mayer as well. I think while Notre Dame is only showing one five-star recruit in this 2009 or 2020 offensive hall so far, I think you're going to see more than that when the time comes. Oh, yeah, me too, for sure. And at that point, you're just talking about semantics because sure. people who follow the, these guys, these recruits closely know that they're five-star talents. Mayer, the number one tight end in the country, he's winning offensive MVP at the opening. When do you ever see a tight end winning that? He's a five-star talent. I don't care what anybody says. And then the same with Tyree. He's won the fastest man two years in a row, the fastest player in the country as a junior and a senior. You're telling me that he's not he's not a five-star talent. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's uh, I don't care whether they're four stars or five stars. It's going to be what they do on the field that really matters for Notre Dame, and we're going to see some great things. He's Mason Plummer. You can find him on Twitter, at MasonPlummer6. You can find his work on SlapTheSign.com. Mason, go enjoy yourself. Thanks for the time, man. You know, it's way too early to predict what's going to happen with these 2020 guys, but when you're looking at six out of the nine offensive players ranked in the top 100, you have to think that perhaps some, all, or most of these guys are going to come clean and come full and, and be developed well, and this could be a very powerful offense in years to come. Again, you know, we're talking about the 2020 class versus the entire 2015 team. So certainly we're just talking about one class versus four here, and I think when you put together some of the younger offensive talent they have already in place, it's going to be really interesting to see if Chip Long gets his list. So here's an interesting story that I stumbled upon that I wanted to get into a little bit. It's that Notre Dame's football stadium for five or six years Five or six years ago, it it had eight events a year. It had six football home games. It had the blue-gold game, and it had commencement. And that's all they did. That was it. That beautiful building sat vacant the rest of the season, the rest of the year, frankly, and just had limited access. So the Campus Crossroads Project allowed them to put classrooms and fitness centers and everything into this and the field turf i think which is a biggie allows them to do more endeavors beyond just the football games obviously and notre dame is capitalizing on that by branding it think about it this year already garth brooks and then you went on to the the outdoor hockey games between notre dame and michigan and boston bruins and chicago blackhawks 
and even beyond the stadium, the U.S. Senior Open over there at Warren Golf Course. And then you came back and you had a, a, a soccer game. A lot goes into this. A lot of planning, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, quite frankly. I had a chance to talk to Mike Seaman here. He was the former, he was the VP of Campus Safety and Events Manager when all this was going on. So he had a heavy hand in putting these together. Had a chance to talk with him for about a half hour for a story I'm working on. But I was most fascinated with the logistics of trying to turn a field into a hockey rink and, and how do you just throw a concert together in a week. And it was I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. So here's Mike Seaman talking about some of the challenges and successes that Notre Dame and its campus and its stadium have realized. The logistics have to be that's got to be a tricky part of all. You're coming into an asset or a facility that is being used throughout the day, every day, you know, as a classroom, as a student rec sports center, as a you name it. And so you have to like organize that activity around all of that. And so, so guard each of those entities were in, you know, in the stadium, probably 10 to 14 days before the event itself. So Garth Brooks, we were only seven days. Holy cow. We had the pit. We had the Pittsburgh game the weekend before on Saturday home game against Pittsburgh. I believe it was a two thirty kick. Let's say the game was done at six, six thirty. First trucks were in at eight (laughs) and worked through the night all the way through it. Obviously to convert to ice and to convert to a soccer field that took, you know, a solid week in advance. So the orchestration of that, the timing of all that, the alignment, because um, our our stadium, unlike big municipal stadiums, our stadium is built in the middle of campus. You know, it's surrounded 360 by by buildings. It's not on the outskirts of campus with a lot of land around it um, where trucks can stage, you know, trucks of staging equipment. I think for Garth Brooks, we had 72 semi-trucks for that. I mean, and so where you staged them and how you safely brought them in and what is the order of them being brought in um, was logistically is just mind-blowing and how you can do that in an efficient, timely, and safe manner. And as much as leading up to it to tearing it down afterwards, right? Those movements um, were non-trivial. They were, they, were, they were non-trivial on how you do that in and around and without, with the least disruption as you can to the daily business of the campus community. And so that, that's a challenge, whereas a municipal stadium might not have anything for a couple of weeks before, and this is the only thing. Well, we're having daily, daily classes, daily activities throughout that whole venue, and so how do you secure it? And there, there were many nights thinking about how to do that, and how to, <laughs> and how to execute that. Class. It was just there's so much of it. There, you know, and they were bringing in five, six trucks at a time, backing up into the stadium to, <laughs> to unload things. And no sooner would one go, and another one would come in, and it basically was a 24/7 operation for you know several days before. So. Sigh of relief when you pulled it off. It was great. Yeah, it was the, the, the most challenging thing on Garth. I, I said this publicly is was the weather that was presented in good old fashioned South Bend, Northern <laughs> Indiana. On October twentieth, we had all all four seasons in one, you know, in about an eight hour period, and we had our meteorologist who um, reports up to me on staff here and is always on site whenever we have a major um, event in the stadium and. 
we saw this coming for the week. You know, we we knew there'd be a, a, a pretty vigorous front coming through on Saturday. And as you got closer, he nailed the time and, you know, noon it was 65 and sunny. And then it came in around one and we went from sunny 65 to 55 mile per hour winds, rain, sleet, hail, snow, whatever. And uh, it subsided just enough, you know, around eight o'clock that night. And I, I think this, Todd, I think that was clearly the most challenging element of the of the whole thing. But the most challenging element became the most galvanizing element of sure. the night. It brought people, it brought him together, it brought the fans together. It it just, it brought everyone together. It was one of those things that everyone talks about. Again, thanks to Mike Seaman for his time there. He's a busy guy. He's actually been promoted. He uh, sort of oversees the job that he used to do. So there, a lot really went into that interview that I, I didn't want to get all into. But we talked about the relationship between the city of South Bend and everything that goes into that. And, and just so many dynamics to these endeavors that Notre Dame wants to do and they said that four might have been a little much. It just sort of happened that way, that four of the events happened so fast, but they couldn't pass it up. I mean, you can't say no to the U.S. Senior Open, and they're pulling them off fabulously. So I was excited to talk to Mike. He's saying about two or three of these a year certainly will fit the needs, and I'm going to actually get a chance to talk to his successor and talk a little bit more about the vision moving forward. Um, but again, I really enjoyed talking to Mike. He's been a good guy, but I've worked with him on a couple different stories, success of the Shamrock series. thought I would share his time with your time. And guess what, folks? We are out of time. Thank you for joining me, Todd Burlidge, Blue and Gold Illustrator. I really appreciate it. Dio McComan Sons for sponsoring us and doing their thing. Thank you for Mason Plummer for including his time into the recruiting report that he gives us every week. And we should have the band back together. I know for sure we will certainly have Brian Kelly here, some player tape, and because camp will be open next time we visit. Thanks again for your time, folks. This has been your Blue Gold Report. This has been a presentation of Opt-In Productions. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.